Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello, everyone. Good to see you all here, those who are watching and listening online. That song takes me back to when I was a kid. I used to love singing that song in the congregation in which I grew up. We had a couple of basses that could really belt it out. I mean, those ladies could really sing. <laughs> Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we will listen to a fairly straightforward teaching from Jesus. You always got to be careful of those straightforward teachings from Jesus. He doesn't leave us a lot of wiggle room with those kind of teachings. A number of years ago, maybe it was over 20 years ago now, Glenn and Gloria Sims received a phone call from a stranger telling them that they were the winners of a $1 million sweepstakes prize from H&R Block. And the caller was talking fast and asking for personal information, and they immediately thought it was a scam and hung up on him. And over the next several weeks, they continued to ignore repeated attempts from the company to contact them so they could claim their prize. It wasn't until they saw a report or a segment on a news program initiated by the company talking about how they were refusing all attempts to communicate with them about their prize that they thought, you know what, this may be legitimate. And finally, they claimed their prize. That happened 20 years ago, but today it is a parable for one of modern Christianity's biggest challenges, especially in our culture, in our country. We believe we have some good news to share with our neighbors about God. But they are increasingly hesitant to listen to our good news message because they do not trust the messenger. Now, as much as ever, we need to hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the verses we're about to read, in which he tells us as his followers, tells us as his church, how to build and maintain our credibility so that others would be more willing to listen to what we want to tell them. So let's read what Jesus says beginning in verse 13, Matthew 5. He says, you are the, say this with me now, salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Again, he says, you are, and say it with me, the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus identifies his disciples as the salt of the earth. In the ancient world, there were a number of uses for salt, one of the most common being as a preservative to keep meat from rotting or decaying. But he also says his disciples, this band of followers that are beginning to gather around him, he says, you're also the light of the world. In the Jewish scriptures and in Jewish tradition, there were a number of things that were sometimes described as the light of the world. The law was said to be a light. The temple in Jerusalem could be a light. The city of Jerusalem itself, a city, could be a light. The Israelites were sometimes described as the light of the world. Elsewhere, we know Jesus applies this label to himself in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the light of the world. But here, Jesus applies it to his followers. You are the light of the world. And then he goes on to say, your light will shine into the world through your good deeds, which when seen by others will prompt them to worship, glorify, or praise your Father in heaven. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight suggests that in the Jewish context in which Jesus originally spoke these words, the following activities could fit into the category or the phrase good deeds. Caring for the poor, visiting the sick, showing hospitality to foreigners, helping a newly married couple set up a home, sharing provisions for a wedding or a funeral, grieving with the suffering. That seems like common sense. And he goes on in his commentary on this passage to say in our day, it can take on even more forms like caring for the suffering in Haiti, establishing hospitals for those with AIDS, providing compassion and guidance for the undocumented, funding food, provisions, and education for orphans, as well as helping in a local food pantry. Each and any other kind of behavioral compassion, compassion that other people can see, behavioral compassion is a way of being both salt and light. Nothing goes straighter to the heart of those in need like love. And by identifying his followers, the church, he's building as both salt and light. Jesus signals from the very beginning of his ministry that the community he's forming around himself will not exist primarily for its own benefit or its own good. The church will exist for the benefit of others and for the good of the world. Pliny was a first century naturalist in one of his encyclopedias. He wrote, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. 
Nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine, and you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Jesus intends for his disciples, for his church, to be useful, to have a positive impact on their surroundings. But this positive, uplifting, propulsive vision of Jesus for his followers, for his church, also comes with a serious warning. As Jesus warns that it is possible for his followers to be of no use whatsoever. And he says this can happen in a couple of different ways. So salt can lose its saltiness. Chemically speaking, salt never ceases to be salt. But salt can become so diluted or contaminated with other substances that it loses its saltiness. It's not strong enough to preserve or cure or flavor much of anything. And it is impossible to sort out the contaminants from the salt. All you can do is throw it out. Jesus says you can also obscure or hide your light in both Saltless salt and hidden light are useless. There have been a number of surveys, studies, reports from a variety of organizations over the past several years pointing to a constellation of factors explaining why contemporary Christianity in our culture is losing or has lost its credibility. You have likely seen some of the results of these reports, bullet points that show up from time to time on social media. Maybe you've heard about them in classes and sermons. One of the big factors is much of Christianity in our culture is perceived, and I guess I'll make a disclaimer here, these perceptions may not be your reality, but they are perceptions of those who call themselves outsiders to Christianity and of those who have no real interest in being a part of Christianity. These are their perceptions, their reality of Christianity. And one of the perceptions is much of Christianity has become enmeshed in partisan politics. In different parts of the country, different churches are perceived to be extensions of either the Republican or the Democratic Party, which both dilutes and contaminates the salt of the gospel. The kingdom Jesus announces it was and still is political. It's about a kingdom. It's about a king reigning. It's about one who is king of kings and lord of lords over all. It's political, but it's never partisan. The kingdom Jesus announces and embodies in his life, death, and resurrection transcends and critiques and outshines all other political platforms and parties. And to mix them is to reduce the salt to where it's of not much use whatsoever. Now, another factor 
is that much of Christianity in our culture is perceived, and this is especially true of evangelical Christianity, is perceived and known more for what it's against than what it's for. More for what it's against than what it's for, rather than being known as people who specialize in self-giving, sacrificial love. Many Christians, and therefore many churches, are perceived to be mean, narrow, and judgmental. And we already know this is true. Social media has exacerbated this perception. Some of the tweets and the posts and the shares from self-identified Christians are embarrassing and unchristlike, and they are eroding the credibility of the gospel message and the messengers. But a third factor is that there have, over the last few years, been a number of high-profile public scandals, both in the Catholic Church and in Protestant megachurches, well-known churches. And these scandals sometimes are around the mishandling of money or sexual abuse. And they have hidden the light of the gospel by giving the impression or the perception that church leaders are not only hypocrites when it comes to money and sex, but also in the way they abuse their power as leaders to cover up their sins surrounding money and sex. There's that old unholy trinity, money, sex, and power doing its worst, the image of the church. Now, those may not be your reality, but they are the perceptions of others that then becomes their reality. And these factors and others are diminishing the image of Christianity in our culture. If we were marketers, we might say that Christianity has a brand problem, that Christianity's brand needs to be rehabilitated, which, by the way, is how I understand the goal of the He Gets Us ad campaign. Have you seen some of these ads on television? The goal of, he gets us, and there will be, by the way, a, another ad airing tonight. In the, the goal of he gets us, as I understand it, is to draw attention or focus onto Jesus and away from those followers of his who are hurting the image or brand of Christianity. And I love the ads, and I love the heart behind it, and I'm all for pointing people to Jesus as the true light of the world. But it's going to take a lot more than some well-made television commercials to rehabilitate Christianity's image and brand in our country. A lot more, but that's not to say it's all that complex. There is a way to do it. Many years ago when I was in college, I worked on a project with a partner for a class in persuasion and attitude change. And our assignment was to study, evaluate, and then write a 10-page paper about a corporate or organizational rebranding campaign. Didn't have to be successful, it just needed to be a campaign where a company or organization fell on hard times with their brand and they tried to rehabilitate it. My buddy and I, we chose to study the Jerry Jones-owned Dallas Cowboys 
whose brand had fallen on hard times after firing coach Tom Landry and then going 1-15 in coach Jimmy Johnson's first year. But we were doing this project in the spring of 1994, just after the Cowboys won their second consecutive Super Bowl. Like I said, this was a long, long time ago. And we engaged in all kinds of painstaking research for this project. We read Sports Illustrated. We watched hours of ESPN. My ambitious project partner drove from Abilene to Valley Ranch and snuck into the Cowboys practice facility and convinced Michael Irvin that he was a reporter. And after a couple of amateurish questions from my friend, Irvin said, what paper did you say you worked for? When we completed and compiled our research, we were able to boil down the Cowboys brand rehabilitation project to one key factor. The Dallas Cowboys rehabilitated their brand by winning two consecutive Super Bowls. And that finding was very, 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 very difficult to stretch into a 10-page paper. <laughs> but the principle's simple. If you own a professional sports franchise and you want to increase the value of your brand, win some championships. Easy to articulate, hard to do. Now, it didn't seem that hard to do in 94. Now it seems almost impossible. But in a similar way, the risk of oversimplifying the formula for rehabilitating Christianity's image and brand in our culture is fairly easy to articulate, but can be challenging to do. To rehabilitate, and to restore the gospel's credibility in our culture, and to reinvigorate the church's influence in our communities, all we have to do is rededicate ourselves to following Jesus and imitating his example of self-giving, sacrificial love, and obey his teachings as his disciples. For some examples of the kind of teachings Jesus really expects his disciples to obey, just keep reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He lays it out in a fairly straightforward manner. But I'll give you a preview of what you'll find in the Sermon on the Mount. It has less to do with what we say and more to do with how we live. I heard this little cynical ditty at a conference describing how Christians can share the gospel with their neighbors. It goes something like this. There's a fish on my Honda there's a fish on my Ford. 
With my fish, I can show the world I'm driving for the Lord. And all can see how God's blessed me by the car I can't afford. And they'll know we are Christians by our cars, by our cars. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by the fish on our cars. But that's not the way the song goes, is it? They'll know we are Christians by our, by our love. By our self-giving, sacrificial love. Not just for one another, but for our neighbors. And yes, Jesus says, for our enemies. They'll know we are Christians. They will know we are followers of Christ by the quality of our lives. Or as Jesus says, let your light shine. That others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time or energy condemning or critiquing religious outsiders who had no allegiance to the God of Israel. He did reserve some of his strongest critique for religious insiders who had lost their saltiness or were hiding their light and therefore having very little positive impact on their surroundings. But he invested most of his time and energy in teaching and showing a bunch of nobodies whom he describes in the Beatitudes, how to be salt and light. And one of my favorite things about Greenville Oaks, one of the reasons I'm so proud to be part of this church, is the way we are leaning into Jesus's vision for his followers and his church of being salt and light in our community. The way we are learning ways that we can engage with our surroundings and have a positive preservative impact on those parts of our society that would rot or fall apart without some gospel. I love that we are serving our community, that we are trying to be a church for, not against, but for Collin County. And to that end, may we continue to take Jesus' teaching and his example to heart. May we continue to devote ourselves to good deeds, not to earn salvation, not to set ourselves apart and make ourselves feel and look superior to others, but to communicate our love for those who are in need. And may our salty, shining lives give us credibility so that when we do share good news, our neighbors can already see it in our good deeds. Let's stand for the benediction. Let's read this prayer out loud together. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and spirit, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen.
Go in peace. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus. Because we honestly believe following Him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.